Today's scripture reading is from Mark 12, 28 to 44. Mark 12, 28 to 44. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. The word of the Lord. We as a church have been studying the book of Mark through the fall and the spring. And through it, we have been talking about what it means to follow King Jesus. What it means to really submit and surrender to him. And today's message is titled exactly that. How do you live a life of surrender and submission in a self-justifying world? How do you live a life unto the Lord 
with the surrender and submission in a self-justifying world. What I mean by in a self-justifying world we live in, don't just look to blame the out there. Self-justifying is also happening within the church all the time too. We are constantly so busy justifying ourselves, thinking we are better, thinking we are good, thinking we know better, thinking we are righteous. And somehow that self-justifying effect has a deceiving effect in itself that when you do it to yourself, you don't even know what you're doing. But when you see somebody else doing it, oh, that orcs you. You're like, I know what they are trying to do. They think they know so much better. When you do it, you're like, what's the big deal? Everyone does that. Just like surgeon once said, jokingly, do you know what's the difference between major surgery and a minor surgery? If it's done to others, it's minor surgery. If it's done to you, it's a major surgery. <laughs> if you just flip that, when others do it, oh, I hate this. Why are they thinking they are so much better, constantly trying to promote their goodness? When you do it yourself, you don't even know it. What's the big deal? That hinders us from truly following Christ as he has called us. Then how do you live a life of true submission and surrender if Jesus really is the king of your life? Uh, both Noah and Jaden, I pray that you will live a life unto the Lord, surrendering yourselves to God, continually submitting to him. And church, I pray that we do the same. We follow him with all our hearts and soul and mind as he has called us to do. Now, so today, before baptism, we'll briefly look at what we have been studying here in the book of Mark. And in order to truly appreciate and understand what is happening in our text today, we kind of have to go back to last week's text that we have studied together. In our last week's text, Jesus says about with the two different groups of people, right? Jesus says about these people are not happy with Jesus, Pharisees, people call it. These are, you can so call it, religious legalists. They are all about the word of the law at the expense of neglecting the spirit of the law. They neglect the grace at its operation even through the law. And not only that, this religious legalist has conflict with Jesus, but not only that, he also has a conflict with another group we talked about called Sadducees. They are religious, but you can consider them more as a progressive elite at the time. They're in a sense, they are religious, yet they are more like a modern secular people. This is all there is. There's no resurrection. They believe that too. But Jesus does not pick any side that has beef with both of them, have conflict. Jesus does not fit in any box. That being said, today there's another group that will have conflict with Jesus. This group is called scribes. Now, when you look at it, it's the scribe who comes to Jesus to ask a question. Who is this scribe, this third group that we are talking about? When we hear the name scribe, what do we say? Oh, scribe, the one who writes down things. Well, not necessarily at Jesus' time. When you hear the word scribe, what they are is all about is a little different. They are the one who is responsible to interpret the word of God, how that actually applies in your life. And scribe could be either group, could be Pharisees and Sadducees, but they tended to be much more associated with this Pharisee group, religious legalist. So you might ask, what's the difference between the two? The Pharisees are like the word of the law. They were all about the law. They kept every single Torah. And that was, as long as I do the external deeds, I am somebody. 
On the other side, scribes are much more, they are responsible interpreting the word of God. So they are, in a sense, practitioners. Why does it matter in the end? What's it all about it? So a scribe here, in that background in mind, scribe does not quite square with Jesus either. Look, spoiler alert. Look, verse 28. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, here a scribe comes asking him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Scribe comes now challenging and asks Jesus. It's a relatively friendly exchange, but nonetheless, scribe comes. Now, why does a scribe ask that? What is it all about in the end? Why? Because there are, I think, like 613 commandments in the Torah. And out of 613, Pharisees are all about it. 613, like 365 of them were don't prohibition. You shouldn't do it. There are 365 of them. And what's the remaining? I think 248 of them are do. You should do this. You should don't do it. 613 of them. Scribes are like, we can do all that. What, what is it all about? Just summarize it. Give me bullet point. Give me cliff notes. Watch Pharisees. They are with the Pharisees are more like religious legalists. They say, 613? We've got this. Jesus, give me more. So they are the ones that not only keep the Torah, but they add it on top of oral traditions. So not only 613, they're all about it. Scribes like, give me bullet point, Jesus. I can do this as long as I got this. Now, so Jesus gives him bullet point what the law is, I mean, what the commandment is all about. You know, I understand that 613, that's a lot. Ten commandments seems to be a lot. What's the point? So Jesus said, verse 29, Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here Markant account doesn't go into all the details about how scribe really reacted. Here said, hey, Jesus, you answered it well. That's the point. But when you look at the Luke's account, which record the same, right after Jesus says that, scribes, something loving God, He's good with it. That's what I mean. He gets paid to love God in a sense. He's like, I love God. It's immeasurable in itself. But loving your neighbor, scribes are like, ooh, that's ooh, not so tricky here. So what happened in, if you look at Luke 10, 29, scribe asked Jesus, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, so who's my neighbor, Jesus? Because in scribes' mind, they, they are the ones that I only do what I think is good. This one section, what's the point? They cared about Leviticus 19, 18, which defined a neighbor more as fellow Israelite Jewish. But they neglected really Leviticus 19, 33 to 34, which is to also care for foreign resident, resident aliens in their land. So they were like, I'm okay to love those who are like me. And then Jesus gives the famous parable of the Good Samaritan passage. And in that passage, Jesus makes a Samaritan, which Jews despised as hero. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Care for those who are different. When you hear that account, you say, oh yeah, so Jesus is basically saying, don't be a racist. Just like Jews, they didn't like Samaritans. Okay, so I'm not a racist, so that's not for me, right? Well, welcome to church. This is for you too. What do I mean by that? Sure, you can just categorize, oh, the difference, Samaritan and Jew. But what about those who are just a little different than you? Who tend to think a little bit different? That you have conflict within your family. Do you love them? You do, don't you? You ought to, Jesus calls us. What about those 
colleague at your workplace who just gets you? What about those whom you claim to love, who just tend to think differently, vote differently, have different philosophy of life? How do you go about loving them? Scribes want cool with it. What about you today? You know what's the ironic thing about all that? Even scribes are offended by Jesus, the Good Samaritan passage. Here in Mark and passage coming back, he's like, well, Jesus, I'm good with that. What does he answers in 32? 32 30, 30 says, well, said teacher, the man replied, 33, to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than burnt offering and sacrifice. He still says all the right things. And Jesus said, he answered still wisely, says, but you are still not far from kingdom of God. You're there, but not quite there yet. Almost there. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, what do we learn from this passage, Shelton? First, it is entirely possible to grow up in a church, to have consistently godly parents, all the right upbringing of the word of the Lord, have all the theology, and still never have come to saving knowledge of Christ. This scribe had like answer memorized, and Jesus called it wisely, but still, you are not that far from kingdom of God. No one dared to ask that. I'm afraid to admit, Shelton, as a pastor, but sometimes you come to hear the word of God. I know every single jot and everything word of the God. You can still be far from God. You can memorize all the scripture. You can still be lost. You have all the doctrine together. You can still be lost. Just because you know it all does not mean you are near to the kingdom of God. Welcome to the baptism service here. You're about to hear the testimonies of our candidate. You say, wow, that's wonderful. But where are you today? You might pride in yourself. I know it all. No, you can still be far from the kingdom of God. Second, we learn, it is also possible to have heard the grace of Christ preached all your life, yet you are still resting on your goodness. It is still very possible. That's what Scribe is doing, right? Did you notice what Scribe is doing in verse 32? They are the expert in the law. So, they don't realize who they are encountering here. He looks at Jesus. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one. He doesn't realize he's speaking to God. You are one, Jesus. And you are, he's like, good job, Jesus. You're doing pretty good. He's got no idea because he's just so, I'm good. I am the one who knows what the word of the law is. I am the scribe. I'm the one interpreting the word of the law. I am good. You could hear all the commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. And said, that's right, good job. I'm good too. Still completely resting on your goodness. And second thing we hear, if you look at verse 37 here, here also Jesus is declaring in this passage about his authority. I am greater than David. He is the son of David and yet greater than the David. He's proclaiming his authority, his messiahship. How does crowd respond to that? Verse 37 here, crowd respond, the large crowd listened to him with delight. Oh, that's charming. No, it's nothing but charming. What, what I mean by that, you can listen to him with great delight without conviction. With a delight, if you just listen to him with a delight, that means you've got no clue about who Jesus is. You said, oh, that's really entertaining speech, Jesus. Good job, I'm delighted. 
If you really understand who Jesus claimed to be, just being amused, to be delighted is not the proper response. If you really understand what Jesus is proclaiming here to be, you either stone him to death, blasphemous, or you fall down prostrate and worship him. Just being delighted, oh yeah, that's cool, Jesus. You cried out saying, oh, I'm really entertained. My ears are tickled by his good authority proclaimed. You can still hear all the things but not have any conviction, just resting in your okayness, keep Jesus at bay in the end. It's a good thing that they are delighted, but that delight should never remain there. They should lead to conviction and conversion. Where are you today? One scholar put it this way, convictions not acted on, die. Truth not followed, fade. Lingering can become a habit. And we can either go in or go further away. What about you? Are you just delighted? Oh, that's a good message. Oh, that's a cute song. Oh, baptism testament. That's great. I'm encouraged. No, you should be convicted. And God, am I just resting on my goodness thinking, oh, I know all the knowledge? Jesus tells them, you are not that far. You're still far from the kingdom. Not that far from the kingdom of God, which means you're still far not quite there yet. Thirdly, you also see here verse 39. There's a scribe just walking around public wearing the fancy robes, wanting to get recognized, getting all the public praise, seeking for empty validation of your goodness. They are still utterly lost. Jesus tells them in verse 40, these men will be punished most severely. Why are you resting on your goodness and empty validation? Whether it be praise of others, by your facade, whether it be seeking validation, career success. Sometimes you seek empty validation through your bank account. Right? Oh man, you feel all of a sudden better about yourself because you got this much, that much. What is the empty validation that you seek? You're resting in the goodness of money, goodness of career. What is the thing that you're resting on today? You say all the right and you can hear the word of God, just be delighted and leave there. Thank you, Jesus, that was cool. Cool is never the right response before Jesus. Uh, there's no lukewarm Christianity. I think we are so comfortable with that. Just coming to church once a week. All right, thank you, Jesus. Now it's my work. I do my thing. No, Christianity is either all in or not. You pick and choose side. Lukewarm, he'll spit it out. But just the delight needs to go one step further. So first, it is entirely possible to have all the right knowledge grow up in the church, still be lost. It's also hear the word of God all the time, grace of God, yet still resting on your goodness. And third, it is still possible to be within an inch away from the kingdom of God. When Jesus said, you are not far from kingdom of God, and no one dared to ask him anymore, that means they are still out. What about you? I'm afraid, I really am genuinely as a pastor, that I'm afraid there are many people in our gathering who are inch away from the kingdom of God. That inch is heaven and hell difference. Where are you today, church? Don't leave this service. Oh, that's cute testimony of Jaden and Noah. And watch first service. Oh, that was great testimony of Amelia and Pippin. And just live. That was cool. No. What about you? Are you resting on your goodness? John Wesley actually got saved through this verse, the famous preacher. You are not far from the kingdom of God. John Wesley was a famous 18th century preacher from Britain. 
He was born and raised in the Anglican household, taught all the right, he was taught all the right theology, all the great upbringing. He even became a minister, a proclaimer of gospel, preaching the good news everywhere he goes. And then when he turned 32, he comes to America. When you go to Savannah, Georgia, that area, there's a lot of Wesley-related things. Because he came to the Georgia to proclaim the gospel to Native Americans, Indians. But you know what he wrote? Obvious, he was, not still, he was still unregenerate. He was still not saved. He was resting on his goodness upbringing, even as he was preaching the gospel. Obviously, that mission failed miserably. He went back to Britain. And this is what he wrote down in his journal. He says, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? He was so resting upon his goodness, upbringing. He did everything right. He had everything memorized. He was proclaiming gospel while his heart was still unregenerate. He's resting on his goodness. And upon his return, his soul really grieved him. He says his journal continues to write. And that one day, faithful week, he writes in his journal, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I had continual sorrow and heaviness in my heart. Because he didn't know where he was before the Lord. He was still inch away from the kingdom of God. Then the same Wednesday morning, he writes in his journal, May 24th, 1938, he writes that he got up at five and he was Bible thumping. And then the verse that he was landing on was this verse, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And that smote his heart. After all the 35 years of existence, he was still not quite there. That evening, he comes to know the Lord. He writes in his journal. I'm reading Wesley's journal here. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in the Elder's Gate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Have your heart been strangely warmed before the Lord? Because you realize, God, I've been seeking for all the empty validation. I've been seeking my identity through the validation of others, how others perceive me. I've been seeking my validity through how much I know. You are still inch away from the kingdom of God. Wesley gets up following day. He writes in his journal Thursday, May 25th. The moment I awakened, Jesus, Master, was in my mouth and in my heart. Since then, he would go out and proclaim the good news of Jesus. Uh, he has preached 42,000 sermons in his life, led numerous to the Lord because of this verse, you are not far from kingdom of God. And he became the founder of Methodist Church. What about you? Where are you today? Have you truly experienced your heart change? Rather than really relying on your self-justification, I am good, I am successful, I keep all the law. Don't deceive yourself, you're deceiving yourself. Others know you're not that good. They perceive you to be good, but you know also in your heart you're not quite there yet. How do you live a life with submission and surrender to what God requires rather than keep justifying yourself? Now, so second, how do you move from the life with self-justification and goodness to true submission and surrender? 
while here in this text, scribes are busy boasting about how good they are at good bigistry pray. You see an example of this poor widow who had only two small copper coins and gives it all before the Lord. That two small copper was not, it was one of the least denominator, smallest denominator at that time. You couldn't even buy a loaf of bread with that. But all she had is she gives it all unto the Lord. She does not give out a margin like those wealth, but she gives it sacrificially. And Jesus prays her. He says, truly I tell you, this poor widow put more into the treasure than all others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of our poverty put everything so she had lived on. Verse 32 and 34. Now, when you see that, oh, that's the life of submission and surrender. Uh, we should be, yes, that is right to read that. She is the life that Jesus calls us to live. But, however, we should not just leave there. We should not just see her as a, that's inspirational. That's the example I should follow. If you just end there seeing her as the inspiration or example for you to follow, then you will repeat the exactly same cycle. But you need to see who she is pointing to. Don't see her just like an end in itself, but consider who she is pointing to. Just a few, few days later, this account, Jesus will be like the widow. He'll be completely abandoned on the cross of Jesus Christ. He had nothing left in his life. And he didn't give his life out of margin, if you didn't know that. Jesus didn't have 10 lives to give. He had one, and he gave it all for us. Even unto the death, he was just surrendering and submitting himself unto the glory of the Father for the love of us. To the degree that you're moved by that, to the degree that you really understand Jesus, you live the life of surrender and submission. And now the risen King Jesus, you call us to follow you. If you just look at it as inspiration, a moral example for you to emulate and follow, it will crush you. Because that's something that you must pull up by bootstrap and you do it yourself. But look to the cross who surrendered and gave it all. As you see how much Jesus has loved you to death, as your heart is strangely warmed, now you want to live a life of dependence and surrender and submission. So today, how do you justify yourself, church? Abandon that, leave that behind. And live a life of surrender and submission. That's what the life that King Jesus calls us to. Let's pray together. Oh God, may we never leave this gathering today without truly experiencing you. God, it's scary to me that we can do all the right things and still be away from you. God, help us to repent not only bad deeds, but help us even repent of our good deeds because our hearts are far from you while we are doing good deeds to seek empty validation and all. So God, as we are about to hear the testimony of how you have saved and redeemed Jaden and Noah, God, I do pray that you stir up our affection for you. Help us to never leave our church and say, oh, that was cool, I'm delighted. No, may that delight lead us to conviction and repentance and turning around truly revealing how we have been justifying ourselves and truly turning around to a life of submission and surrender. God, we cannot do that on our own. Uh, God, help us in our weakness and vulnerability 
So we commit every single day of our lives to you. Change us, mold us in the likeness of Jesus Christ. In your precious name we pray, amen.